This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. All right, all right. Go ahead and find your seat this morning. We're going to dive right in. We've got a lot to cover today. I'm going to save the announcements uh, for for this whole uh, sermon at the end. We're going to talk about things that we're going to be involved with. Uh, Today we begin our series, uh, our Advent series, so uh, the Christmas tree, we got all the the decorations up, and uh, thank you for all of those who helped out. Josh Daly did an incredible job on the Christmas tree. Thank you, Josh. Looks like we're up in Macy's in this place. We just, we just, we just, uh, making the hood look good. I like it. Um. The name of this series that we're in, if you don't have a Bible, we'd like to get a Bible in your hand. Make sure that's not the name of the series, but make sure you get a Bible. And if you need one, raise your hand and we'll get a Bible in your hands. Uh, There's two places I want you to turn in your Bibles, and that's John chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. John chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to be covering a lot of, a lot of text today, so I, I want to make sure that you are able to mark these down, write them, go study them this week. Uh, we really do encourage uh, all of you as we go through this series in Advent to, to figure out ways in your home to celebrate this Advent series week after week. There are uh, there's study guides online. We'll be putting some of those, uh, you know, some of those out from other congregate. There's so many resources. We didn't need to come up with uh, uh, ways to do that. You could easily find them online. Super easy for you to find devotionals and advent calendars and all those kinds of the ways in which we, our family, try to spend these times to uh, to, to to be with our family, to teach them this time, and to really slow down, if you will. And spend Christmas not getting speed, speed up as this holiday does. Everything gets really busy. But to slow down and to remember what this time is all about. And that's kind of the aim of everything we're doing. This series is going to be really big for us. We've actually been thinking about and praying about this for a while. Because uh, we are going to be not only every service, every service we're, we're going to be not only making announcements, big announcements, but we're going to be calling each one of us to live these things out. And next Sunday, I really do encourage you to come as we're going to be talking about some things that are huge for us as a congregation. I, I can't overemphasize, I would love for you to be here as we're going to be making announcements that are literally going to change the very, uh, the very face and, and culture of who we are. So I would ask that you would come next Sunday. Sunday as we make uh, some really big, exciting announcements. Um, so I'm going to dive right into this series because I'm going to be talking about ways that we can get involved with what we're talking about. I, I titled this, this series Embodiment, and I, I want that, that definition to go up on the screen for embodiment. And I put this out on, on, uh, on Facebook and social media this week because I really want us to not just say this word embodiment, but to get why did we entitle this embodiment and it means the representation or expression of something in a tangible or visible form the representation or expression of something in a tangible or visible form now we can start with this could be an extremely powerful title for an advent series all by itself if we were just talking about Jesus himself The embodiment of the word coming and dwelling amongst us. Look at John chapter 1. We're going to be here throughout this whole series. And I'm not going to read all of John chapter 1. But I'm going to read sections of it. I'm going to start in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it look at this expansive uh this big huge definition of who this is that is coming in the beginning was the word i love how john one starts 
by talking about how big this word was, that it created all things, that all things came through him, all things were made by him. This light is, is not just the source of, of, of light, it's the source of all of life came through this word. And then if you look at verse 14, this is where this embodiment piece, and that word, this big, powerful, creative, all God, all, all of this power that comes from, that created all things, this light that shines, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This very message that we celebrate in this Advent season, this whole Christmas season, this time of year is all about the Word, God, humbling Himself and being wrapped in flesh. Not just wrapped, becoming man. All God and all man. And not just becoming man, but humbling himself all the way to the point of death. Death on the cross. That this salvation message is not just a message in which we preach. This salvation message is flesh and blood. Jesus, the fullness of God, sent His Son, and wrapped this whole Word in flesh so that it could be embodied, so that it could be seen. Now, people could deny the Gospel. They could deny the message. They could deny the truth of the message. But what you can't deny is that there was a man named Jesus who lived amongst us. You could say that he was a liar. You could say that he wasn't God. You could say whatever you want. But you cannot deny the truth that there was a man, flesh and blood, named Jesus, who dwelt among us. And that flesh and blood puts a whole problem in our world. You see, this is not a concept or just a message. This is an embodied flesh and blood person. You see, when we talk about the incarnation, and we hear how our fathers have talked about it, how scriptures have talked about it, our spiritual fathers, if you hear in the creeds that the incarnation is the divine nature of the Son that has been united with human nature in one divine person, that Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, this is central to our faith. That He is all God and all man. And here is why uh, many of us struggle in our relationship with God. is because we have a disembodied gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Many of you have beliefs about God and not a relationship with a person. Jesus. It's concepts to us. For us, Christianity has become a list of doctrines that we believe. Here's all the things we believe. Here's all the things we profess. Here's all the things we say. And it has become disembodied from Jesus Himself. And all of a sudden we have made Jesus not the central piece of this relationship by which we can have relationship with God, but we have made this whole Christian faith about understanding concepts and understanding a message rather than a relationship with the person of Jesus Himself. Christianity has become disembodied because we don't spend much time on our relationship with the one who came in flesh. This gospel is an embodied gospel. It's not just a concept. It's not just a word. It's not just 
an idea. It is flesh and blood. And this is why it makes it hard for people to wrestle with the idea of Jesus himself. Because they can't deny, they can deny that he is God, but they can't deny his existence. Look at what Matthew 28, and you don't have to turn there, but right, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. When Jesus dies and rises again and comes back in the flesh and he's with his disciples, what he says to them is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them what? To observe. Teaching them to obey. Teaching them to observe. This is a part of the storyline of all of Scripture. When God creates man and, and, he's, and He creates him in His own image and likeness and sin breaks that image bear and destroys this world and all things are, are now under this curse of sin, God chooses a people. And that people is not just a people who has a message. They are a people who are chosen to embody the message to the rest of the world. That people is to embody the light that the people of Israel would be a light to the nations. And Jesus does this same thing that he himself comes and perfectly embodies and dies the death and lives sacrificially and rises from the grave conquering death and sin. And what does he do? He calls his people once again to this, teach them. Not just teach them from a pulpit, not just teach them in a classroom, but teach them to obey. Teach them to embody this message. And now he doesn't just tell them, teach them this and they'll get it. He says, I'll give them the spirit. I'll give you all authority and all things you need. And God pours out his spirit upon them so that they can, by his spirit, do all that he has commanded them to do. One of my favorite texts of this is in Acts chapter 4, 13 through 16. I'm going to read this, but you can write it down or you can turn there because I'm trying to move quickly through this section so we can get to the meat of this. Now when, you, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded him to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident, and all the inhabitants of, Jew of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Notice this. The disciples... In Acts chapter 4, as they are establishing this church by the Spirit of God, we're healing people, we're embodying the message of the gospel, we're living out the very things that God had commanded them to do. And here in the face of opposition, they're being confronted, and what they had noticed is this. These people were not educated, they were very common people, but they, everybody was astonished by Peter and all of the disciples. Why? Because they recognized they had been with Jesus. And what they noticed was not how smart they were or not how abnormal they were. What they noticed was these people must have had a relationship with Jesus because of the healings that they were seeing. And they wanted to discipline them and they wanted to argue with them and they wanted to tell them that their message was wrong and all the things that they said was wrong but they couldn't because they couldn't argue with the healings you see they denied the message and they can deny the message but what they couldn't deny was the embodiment of the message because the embodiment of the message had power they couldn't deny the power, 
that these men had. They couldn't deny the fact that whenever they were around people, people were being healed. People were being changed. Lives were being touched. They may have not liked that they were doing it in the name of Jesus, but they wouldn't confront them because they couldn't deny the evidence of it. See, here's my concern with where I think we as a church could go if we're not careful. We will spend more time trying to scientifically dissect Jesus with doctrines and truth and academics and education. And in so doing, we disembody Jesus. Because what we have done is made the gospel more about education and less about transformation. Listen, I think education is powerful. I, I don't have anything against education except for this reality of education is only as good and as powerful as it is embodied. When we become lifetime, if you will, hear me on this, where we spend all of our lives just going to class, what can end up happening is what we start doing is elevating people who are continually trying to become smarter and then missing this idea of what does it look like to really show the world what it is to live into all of these realities of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 8, not with a, this does not give us a bash on knowledge, but it does give us context. 1 Corinthians 8 says this, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. There is a knowledge that comes with knowing more. And when you have an understanding of knowledge saying, I need to know more, I need to know more, and I need to know more than others, what ends up happening is you begin to get puffed up and what that leads to is isolation. In the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, they knew that they could eat whatever they want, but Paul is saying that knowledge will puff you up, but love will edify and allow you to not eat certain things for the sake of those who are weaker. Why? Because even your knowledge will isolate you and pull you away from people if you don't understand that the embodiment of that knowledge is love saying, I don't need to eat it. I could eat it, but I don't need to eat it. Why? Because what's more important is my relationship with them. See, this knowledge that we so pursue has become knowledge that puffs up rather than, hear me, a knowing. The kind of gospel that we're being called into. The good news is not you get to get more knowledge and you get to ascend and be high. The good news is you get to have a knowing, intimate relationship with Jesus. You get to know Him. Listen. When I say I know my wife, that means something massively different than me just going to a bunch of classes and reading books about her. It means something massively different than me putting her on a scientific table and dissecting her and go, studying her liver and studying these parts of it. And I get to know the deep parts. Of, that, that's not what it means. What it means is I know her. I know her story. I know her life. I know her brokenness. I know her weakness. I know her. She knows me. I know her. That kind of knowledge is the kind of knowledge that the gospel calls us into. And the purpose of this series is to, to correct something in us. And, and here's, here's what I'm hoping will take place. Because I believe that the problems we're seeing in, our, uh, in the church, church in America, let's just go there, and, and even we're a part of that, in the church in America, is that we're not struggling with having enough education. What we're struggling with is an embodiment problem. That the real tension is, the reason why we're losing our influence is because we have a lot to say and nothing to point to. 
A lot to say with nothing to point to. That's why over these next few weeks, we're going to talk about embodiment in these ways. And I want you to go to this next slide. First, today we're going to talk about what would Christmas look like if instead of just talking about generosity, we embodied generosity. What would it look like if instead of just talking about reconciliation, and we're going to talk a lot more about this right now, we got a great message of reconciliation of all peoples. All nations, tribes, and tongues will be reconciled according to Scripture. We got a great message, but what would it look like if the church embodied that message? We're going to talk about embodying being a witness. A witness to the world. We're going to talk about embodying being the family. This kind of embodiment message is going to push us not into just deep thought, although we need to think, but it's going to push us into a place where all of, the, all of these messages are going to call us to say, what would it look like to live in this Advent series with an emphasis in your heart and mind to say, how can we live this out rather than just talk about it? How can we live sacrificially? This series is going to call us to very specific things. And my prayer is that we'll learn to embody this stuff. That we will not have a disembodied gospel. Church, I'm not saying we shouldn't say anything. That's not what I'm saying. My, my, my calling and giftedness and the things that God has called is to preach. So it would be foolish for me to say there's no purpose in preaching when I'm up here preaching. But preaching, separate from embodiment, becomes a whole different thing. It becomes hypocrisy. This reality of importance of, of, of preaching and embodiment becomes so intertwined that we would be a people who declare and display the very gospel that we believe. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read this and i want to kind of share with you my heart about generosity if you've known me for any period of time this will not be a surprise to you because i constantly talk about it this time of year um i'll take this off it's getting hot up here <laughs> it was cold when i came in um one of the things that I really struggle with in this time of year is on Thursday, we celebrated something called Thanksgiving. That's a beautiful holiday. You're with family, you're with friends, and you just spend all of your time just supposed to be being thankful, right? Like on our, uh, we have a tradition. We stand around the table and we go from A to Z and we say what we're thankful for starting with A, B, C, D. Now this takes a long time right? Especially when you have little kids and they like to sit there and think instead of planning ahead and getting what their letter is, you know, ahead of time. And so everybody's kind of given ideas. But A to Z, to be thankful. Why? Because we want to cultivate Thanksgiving. And this big holiday of Thanksgiving in America has become, you know, this great day of family and Thanksgiving and everybody puts on on their Facebook things they're thankful for, on their social media, and they're talking about ways that they're thankful. So we celebrate one day of Thanksgiving and then the very next day, maybe not even the next day, we go to the absolute polar opposite and we go to Black Friday. Which is, we are done being thankful and we're going to go back to saying we don't have enough and we need more, 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 more. And we're going to fight the person who has my TV and we're going to punch somebody and we're going to make videos. Up. We're going to go back to the darkest day of consumerism and flee as fast as we can from being thankful and say we don't have enough and I need more. So that's the day after Thanksgiving. And then Christmas. Christmas, December 25th. We're celebrating the salvation we need in Christ. We're celebrating 
God becoming flesh to come and save us. And then one week later, one week to the day later, we celebrate New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. And the way we celebrate that is by making resolutions that we don't need a Savior. We'll fix ourselves. We, ha- we, have, a- we have a problem. <laughs> we quickly return back to what we really have at our core. Consumerism and independence. And in these times, what you end up seeing is Christmas has become the biggest time of year for consumerism and debt. Most of us in this room feel a massive weight to buy extravagant gifts and to put ourselves in debt. Most of us actually feel it's justifiable to put ourselves in debt this time of year. We'll pay it off later. We feel such a weight that if we see somebody who's not getting big and extravagant gifts, we feel bad for them. Because what this time of year is all about is getting big and extravagant and beautiful gifts. I'm not against at all gift giving. I think it's beautiful. But what it has produced in us is this different story of Christmas that's being told. The story of Christmas has gone from the promised birth of Christ, this hope and this revolutionary love that has come to what has happened is, is in this time of year, the birth of our Savior has somehow turned into a season of stress, traffic jams, and shopping lists. Can I get an amen? And when it's all over, many of us are left with presents to return, a looming amount of debt to pay off, and empty feelings of missed purpose. Why? Because although we come on Sunday morning and light a candle and sing some songs when we're not busy, And although we may believe, kids, Jesus is the reason for the season, let's not forget that, your kids are going, that's cute. That's a cute little saying you you say. And you bought the plaque that cost you way too much, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. But everything else in your life embodies something totally different. Everything. You're constantly stressed and your kids see that. Your hope lies in other places and your kids see that. You're more consumed with them making lists and checking it and making sure you can afford it and how are you going to get all this and where is this going to come from and how is this going to happen? All these things start to... And your, your family and the world and your kids and the rest of our community sees us saying one thing and embodying another and I think we should be really intentional this year to make Christmas about generosity and not about consuming how could we go back to the very core of what Christmas is all about and to make this season about generosity 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at this. Verse 1 through 9. If you could follow along with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 1 through 9 says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, 
of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but that they gave themselves first to the Lord and they will and and by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he as he had started, that he should complete among you the act of grace. You as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not a command to prove by the earnestness of others and your love also is genuine for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich here's what Paul does Paul points out a church called the Macedonian church and he uses them as an example of generosity But this example of generosity falls in line with all other examples of generosity. You don't see many examples in Scripture of people that are highlighted as generous from the rich. You don't see many people who are talked about who have lots of money who are generous. What are used throughout Scripture as the key emphasis of people who are generous are people who don't have much. How many of you remember the widow's mite? Yeah? A woman who barely had anything but gave it all. Jesus points her out as many are coming and laying down their excess. She's giving her all. Paul falls in line with all the stories of Scripture when he starts talking about generosity. He points out this church called the Macedonia Church who he says this church is the the example of generosity and he says this and here's how they gave they gave in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and in their extreme poverty it's overflowed in a wealth of generosity this church was in affliction and was in poverty But they did something. They gave generously. And their generosity has gone down in the very canon of Scripture as an example to all the churches, including us, of how we should give. First statement I want to make, and I hope you write these down because this is what I'm praying we will embody in this time. Gospel generosity does not depend on the economic status of people. Notice that. When we have this belief system that we will be generous when we have more money, we're missing the very essence of generosity. Why? Because those who are used in Scripture as the example of generosity are ones who are at poverty level. And they are being used as the example for the rich on how they should give. The widow's might, the Macedonian church. Because what gets put on display, here's what gets put on display when we are generous and we don't do it out of excess, but we do it out of generosity. Here is what gets put on display. The grace of God. You see that in verse 1? The grace of God gets put on display. And I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what I want you to know about. I want you to know about the grace of God. And he gives an example that here's how you're going to know about the grace of God. Look at the Macedonian church. Here's what happens when a people embody generosity. The world gets to see grace. I could stand up here all week and preach to y'all about God's grace, or I could point at people being generous and say, that's God's grace. Or you could argue with my message, but you can't argue with the embodiment of it. You just got to deal with it. You get that? 
I could stand up here all day and say, God is so gracious to you. And then I could say, but look at these people who don't have much, who are giving so generously that it's putting them in more uncomfortable places. You see, in his first few words, Paul shows that we consider both the opportunity and the willingness to give comes from a desire, an understanding of God's grace and a desire for that grace to be displayed. When people give, God's grace gets put on display. When people consume, something else gets put on display. In great trial, in great affliction, in deep poverty, we have become the best at believing that uh, we'll be more likely to give when we have more and not realizing that Americans are at the top one percentile of income earners of all the peoples in the world. Even our poorest are at the top of income earners. Even those who we would consider below the poverty line are wealthy in accordance to worldly standards and in global standards. Christians are waiting for more room to be generous because they don't want it to hurt when they are generous. The only answer for generosity is not waiting for more. It's learning to give now. It should start now. And it should hurt and it should make war against something in us called greed. It should make war against our nature, which is consumption and greed. Somebody called me this week. I loved this question. It was incredible. He said, look, pastor, I've had, this encouraged me. He said, I've had so many times where I didn't have enough to pay bills. I had so many times where I called you and I asked for help and you guys helped me. And he said, now I'm calling you for a different problem. I have so much money and I'm starting to feel uncomfortable with how I'm handling it. How do you make sure you don't fall into greed? I love that question. Because then we could start talking about how do we make war against greed in our heart. And I'm going to tell you, the first answer I gave is generosity is a war against greed. Second answer is being in a community where people don't have as much as you is a war against greed. That's why scripture calls us into being in a community with those who don't have as much as us. Here's why. Because the reason why those who have a lot always hang around with people who do have a lot is they don't like feeling uncomfortable about having a lot. And they don't want to learn from people who have less than them. So when they put themselves in community where they're with the poor and they're having to learn from them and not just give to them, they're starting to learn, I could live with less. And if I have more, I better be, I better be generous with it. Statement number two. Let's move quick, Aaron. <laughs> Gospel generosity hurts because it's sacrificial. <laughs> For I bear witness, Paul knew that the Macedonians gave in two ways. First, they gave according to their ability. Did you see that? And second, they gave above their ability. There's a difference between you giving what you know you're commanded to give, which you should have the ability to give. There's a difference between giving, if you will, your tithe, your what you should have ability to give, according to your ability, what's comfortable. But there is another level of giving, which is this free will giving, which was beyond their ability. There's duty, and then there's this free will type of giving. I'm praying that we give so generously that it would hurt. When is the last time 
you gave something that caused you to have to sacrifice for you to give it. When's the last time you gave something which meant you couldn't have something in order to give? Because most of the time we think in this way, I got to take care of all of this and then whatever I have left over, I'll give. Rather than thinking, I need to give and I need to be generous. And if that means I can't have these things that would make me, that sacrificial kind of giving. This is the kind of giving that represents the kind of gospel that we say we believe. The kind of giving that Jesus gave. Beyond their ability. Notice that. This was beyond what they were able to give. And this kind of gospel generosity Notice this, my third statement. Gospel generosity is convicting and makes others uncomfortable. Can you say amen there? Because I know you don't want to, but just say amen. amen. Thank you. <laughs> Notice what Paul says here in verse 4. I love this verse. Verse 4 says this. Begging us earnestly for the favor to take part in the relief of the saints. Here's kind of what this verse is showing us. That Paul and all the other churches didn't want the Macedonian church to give above their ability. And they came to him and said, listen, let us give. They were begging Paul to give. And here's kind of the idea of this text. Paul and the other churches were uncomfortable with how much the Macedonian church were giving. Why? Because they knew how much it was sacrificial. And they were wanting them to give less and to give according to their ability. Paul was almost to the place of where they had to beg to be a part of it. This kind of giving makes us uncomfortable. When I see someone who comes up to me and goes, Pastor, I want to give, and I want to give generously, and they're giving their last couple of dollars, I'm going to tell you, it makes me uncomfortable. And it makes me, and inside of me, want to look at them and go, keep your two bucks. Why? Because of the uncomfortableness of what you know that sacrifice is. Last statement, gospel generosity is only motivated by Jesus. Look at that last verse. Verse 7, or verse 8 and 9. I say to you, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Notice where this motivation for this kind of generosity comes from. It comes from you seeing how Jesus emptied himself and gave so extravagantly and sacrificially, and it's, it is through his poverty that you have become rich. It was through the poverty of the Macedonian church that Jerusalem church experienced riches and support. It was through the poverty of Christ that we experienced true riches. The gospel is experienced when it is embodied. That's when the gospel is experienced. The Macedonian church could point to Christ very easily and be used as an example for who Jesus was, not because they preached something, but because they gave sacrificially. It was the embodiment of the gospel that gave opportunity for the apostle to point to Jesus. Guys, we could have an incredible Christmas of amazing servants, services where we say, invite your friends and let's talk about the true meaning of Christmas. 
But I'm going to tell you what our neighborhood needs to see. They need to see people who are so rich because of what Christ has done for them that they make war against the very consumerism of this age and this time. And they spend all of their time, energy, resources celebrating Christmas in a way that makes consumers uncomfortable, even consumeristic Christians. And figure out ways that we could be more generous. I've thought of a few things and I want you to write these things down. Here's ways that we could be more generous. One of the ways is instead of having our kids write down lists of what they want, what if we had them write down lists of what we want to give? What if we made it more exciting for our families to say, what could we give this year? How could we be generous? How could we get more excited about giving than receiving? One of the highlights of my time is that as a family, we, 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 we pray about what it is we're supposed to give financially, and then I break it up. We go to the bank, and instead of just writing down a debit, I go to the bank, and I get cash, and I say, this is something that Kairos, Ezra, Hadessa, all of us are giving. This could have been a gift for you. But instead, it's going to be a gift that we're going to give away. And each one of them has to lay that down and give it themselves. What are ways that we could get our family more excited about giving? Which means we get less, but we get to experience the gospel more. Because we get to give and be generous. Every year we do an Advent offering. And this is a part of something that I have enjoyed big time and this year I am extremely excited about it because we get to give in two ways towards foster care and helping the orphan and the widow we get to support families who are in need we get to do this every year and the second thing is we get to we get to create a place where we get to establish a place as a learning center, community center, where we get to give more back. It's becoming a place where this building that has been given to us has been given so generously to us becomes a place that we now in return because of the generosity we've received. Let's give it away. Let's open it up. Let's make sure this community gets to use it and learn and grow. How could you pray about saying, how can I give sacrificially towards this Advent offering which we will be taking throughout this year, throughout this season? Another way is giving of our time, affordable Christmas. On the 18th, what we're doing is all of these gifts are going to come and families in this neighborhood that cannot buy gifts at full price, they get to come in and purchase gifts at 10% of the value. So if something's $10, they get to buy it for a dollar. What if you came and that 18th on that family Sunday, we come in together and as a family we celebrate and then you volunteer the rest of your day just serving and loving on and then rejoicing as other people get gifts. Sign up and give your time what are ways that we as a community could make war against greed and display the grace of God through generosity these are just ideas but until you embody it it's not going to be seen or displayed what if this year is our biggest Advent offering? What if this year is the highest number of people volunteering and serving? What if this year in your homes and in your communities, the people around you got to see how generous you were? They would see the very embodiment of Christmas, the very embodiment of this relationship with Jesus. As we come to this table, what we're feasting on is generosity. You're holding in your hands the highest form of sacrifice that could ever be made. The spilling of His blood and the breaking of His body. You're eating and drinking a gift. 
that could not be purchased, that could not be purchased by your works or your efforts. It could not be paid for. It is receiving of a gift. If you're like me, receiving a gift is really hard. I have a hard time with it. Somebody gives me a gift, I'm always like, ah, I could buy it myself. I love having the feeling where I don't need somebody else's generosity. And you know what? That's a sin in me. That's not a good thing. That's an independence. Because what I really do need is extravagant, sacrificial generosity because I can't purchase salvation. And it is because I have experienced true sacrificial salvation and I've understood the riches of Christ. I can now stomach, if you will, the pain of sacrificial giving and living out the joys of giving. Have you ever known you couldn't give to somebody and then you went and did and I I can think of times and I'm like man I'm so excited to give this I'm so excited to put this gift in their hand I'm so excited to put this money I'm so excited that kind of excitement in giving for me has become a picture of what God in Christ did for us that he was so joyful to give us his son Notice whenever God talks about the cross, whenever Scripture talks about the cross, it talks about the pain and sacrifice, but He says, for the joy that was set before Him, He does these things. It was a joy for Him to give this gift, even though it was painful. That kind of joy. Because without it, we could not have restored relationship with Him. So as you come and feast on His generosity, I want you as families to not only partake, but to pray about how can you embody generosity this season. The tables are open. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.